Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I just approach you this morning and pray that you'd give me the ability to clearly and powerfully speak forth truth. I pray that you would protect me from speaking error, and if I should, Lord, help in the minds of any people here to be able to distinguish between what is of my flesh and what's of my spirit. We pray, Lord, that Jesus would be honored and glorified today, and that you'd help us to get practical help on battling Satan's temptations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's obvious to anybody, as you look around at the world today, that there's something horribly wrong in the world. Isn't that true? You look around and it's just obvious. Something is wrong. <laughs> you, you look on uh, the news at night, or you open a newspaper, or you go online to foxnews.com, and you read what's happening in the world around you, and it's filled with stories about war, or violent assaults like murder or rape, or sexual trafficking. And if that's not the particular problem, you just have to look into your own heart and you see so much that's wrong inside of us. We, we see things like selfishness, self-centeredness, pride. Um, we, th- we see things uh, like bitterness, or unforgiveness, or envy, or covetousness. And we wonder, why is the world this way? We've already read in Genesis 2.25, or no, chapter 1, verse 31, sorry, that after God had created everything that he had made, he saw that it was all very good. But you look around at the world today, and you can't say that anymore, can you? It doesn't all seem like it's very good. There's a lot that's very bad within the world. At the end of chapter 2, God says there that the man and the woman were naked, but were not ashamed. So there was no shame, which means there was no guilt, which means there was no sin, and there was also no sickness or no suffering or no death. But what characterizes the world today? Shame, guilt, sin, sickness, suffering, and death. So if we didn't have Genesis 3 in our Bibles, we would not be able to make sense of the world around us. If you just tore this chapter out, you'd have no hope of making any sense of the reality of the world in which you live. But Genesis 3 is the missing piece of the puzzle that helps us to understand why the world is the way it is. It's the way it is because the world is fallen. And it's fallen because our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in a perfect world so long ago. That's what I want to focus with you on today. And what I want to do is focus on three persons. Satan, man, and Jesus in that order. I want to look at Satan and his schemes, man and his failure, and Jesus and his obedience. Satan and his schemes, man and his failure, and Jesus and his obedience. So first of all, let's look at Satan. This passage in Genesis 3 has a lot to teach us about Satan. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Any good coach, before he goes into a game against another opposing team, will take time to research that team's strengths and weaknesses, won't he? He'll look at their game plans. He'll want to be apprised of what they usually do in this situation or that situation. Or any good general, any wise general, when he goes to battle, will have done his homework to find out what his enemy is likely to do in terms of their assault, the way they're going to attack. And so must be the way we approach Satan. 
He's our enemy. We need to do a little bit of research. We need to know what his tactics are and his schemes are. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about the fact that we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Now, do you know what a scheme is? Yeah, it's a plan. It's a certain kind of plan. It's a devious plan. It's a devious plot. Paul says we're not ignorant of Satan's devious plots. And he does have devious plots in order to bring us down. So we need to be wise and understanding about how Satan works, how he tries to take us down. And that's what we're going to be trying to doing this morning is getting informed about his schemes. Notice verse 1 talks about the serpent. The serpent. Either Satan appeared like a serpent or Satan indwelt a, a literal physical serpent and appeared to Eve in this form. We're not sure which. It could have been either one. Satan sometimes takes on various forms. Just like good angels can take the forms of human beings at times, so evil angels can take different forms and appear in different positions and ways. So Satan may have been appearing like a serpent, or he may have been indwelling a real serpent. Now, if he was indwelling a real serpent, that's interesting because um, over in, in Genesis 3, verse 14, it says, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly shall you go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. What does that tell you? Before Satan was cursed, he wasn't traveling around on his belly. That was a result of the curse, right? So my hunch is that Satan had legs just like the other beasts of the field had legs over in uh, Revelation 12.9, it says that great dragon, the serpent of old, the one who is the devil and Satan. So Satan there is associated with the serpent and the dragon. Now, a dragon is a mythical figure. We all ad- admit that. Interestingly, many different cultures have these ideas, these, these mythical ideas that there is such a thing as a dragon. Well, dragons have legs, interestingly enough. It could have been that this serpent in the beginning was more like a dragon than like the kind of snakes that we see slithering around on the ground, able to propel himself forward like a cow or a horse or any other, a dog, anything like any other beast. So he was different than the way we normally think of a serpent today. Interestingly, also this serpent was able to speak because he talks to Eve. Now, we find in one of the Gospels that A legion of demons entered into a herd of swine. So it's not beyond Satan or his demons to enter into either human beings and possess them or enter into animals if he chooses to do that and inhabit them. It may be here that Satan himself enters into a serpent who is a different kind of serpent than we know today and actually speaks through that serpent to the woman. Over in 2 Corinthians 11, it says that Satan sometimes will disguise himself as an angel of light. Now, we look at those pictures of dragons, and, you know, they're grotesque-looking. They're hideous. They've got wings and long tail, and they breathe out fire, and we're scared of them. But it could be that this particular kind of serpent was not grotesque or ugly. It may have been a very, very beautiful creature. In fact, the root meaning behind serpent in the Hebrew is shining one. 
So here comes this shining one, this, this creature, probably not unattractive, but attractive to Eve, a shining one, and he appears to Eve, and he begins to speak to her. And his ploy here is, well, we read in verse 1 that he was more crafty than any beast of the field. What does it mean for someone to be crafty? Slick. Slick, okay. Yeah. Sneaky. Slick. Cunning. Conniving. Conniving. This particular serpent, well, the devil through the serpent, his goal was to seduce and to deceive Eve into fall, falling from God. Uh, he wanted to come in between God and that human being so that that human being became independent of God and fell from their state of innocence and plunged the whole world into sin. That's what his tactics are. Now, let's look at the schemes of the devil this morning. I want to point out to you six of his schemes. Number one, Satan attacks the vulnerable. Do you notice who he attacks here? He attacks... Eve. He doesn't attack Adam. I mean, we can't be absolutely sure of this, but it seems to be implied in the text that Adam was not here when Eve came to the woman because Adam's nowhere in sight. He's not speaking. He's, he's not part of the dialogue. He does appear in verse 6, but it seems by the time we get to verse 6, the scene has switched. Eve there in verse 6 is in the middle of the garden looking at the desirability of that fruit. Well, back here in verse 1, I don't think we're at that particular place. Satan comes to her and tells her about this particular tree that God won't let her eat from. So, Satan comes to the woman, not the man. Now, back up in your mind. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Who did God give the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to? Give to Adam. Where was Eve? Yeah, she wasn't created yet. She gets created just a few moments later in our Bibles, verses 18 to 25. She wasn't even around when God gave the command. So God comes to the serpent who never heard the command come from God himself. Where did she hear it from? Her husband. Her husband. And so she's less sure about this word than Adam is. Adam heard it directly from God. Eve heard it from Adam. So, in order to attack the more vulnerable one, the serpent comes to Eve and starts to begin planting doubts in her mind about that. You know, I also noticed this, that it appears that the serpent came to the woman when she was alone. Her husband wasn't around. She was more vulnerable because her head, her husband, was nowhere to be found. I don't know what he was doing off picking fruit from the trees or, I don't know, cultivating and keeping the garden. But here, the serpent comes to Eve and begins to whisper in her ear to fill her with doubt and confusion. And you know, we are more vulnerable to Satan's attacks when, number one, we're less sure of the word, and number two, when we are alone. I like to watch uh, Animal Planet on TV. You guys ever watch that show? You love it? Oh, good. I found a kindred spirit here. (laughs) I can't understand most movies, but I can understand about animals killing each other. Anyway, (laughs) and uh, I I like to watch these lions or jackals or leopards and how they hunt their prey. And have you ever followed the animal planet? And who, who is it that this lion picks on or chooses to take down? It's, it's the weakest, 
most vulnerable of the pack. It's usually the one who's injured. He's got a hurt leg, and so they're, tra- they're lagging behind the rest. Some wildebeest who can't keep up with the rest of the herd. And so these lions, they're just looking around. They're prowling. They lie down under the grass, and their eyes are above it, and they're looking to see who can we attack her. And they always go after that one who's vulnerable and who's alone, separated from the rest of the pack. The Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know who he likes to pick on? People that are separated from the pack, who keep their distance from the rest of the body of Christ. Beware, my friends, if you get to the point where you're secluding yourself from the rest of the body. When Sunday rolls around and you say, oh, I'm just kind of tired, I think I'm going to sleep in today. And that doesn't just happen once, it starts to happen on a regular basis. Or on Wednesday night, you think, oh, I think I'll just do something else. I don't really want to go to missional community. And it becomes a habit of your life. Watch out. You're alone. You're becoming more vulnerable. And that's when Satan likes to try to pick you off. He likes to, he, he sees that here's somebody I can get to because they don't have the strength of other believers in their life. So that's his first method of attack. That's his scheme. Secondly, he attacks the inspiration of the Word of God. The inspiration of the Word of God. He comes to Eve and he says to her, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Emphasize the word God. Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What he's doing is casting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind that God was the one that said that command. Has God said it, Eve? Eve would say, well, I really don't know for sure. You see, I wasn't around when he gave the command. I'm taking it on my husband's word, but I guess he could have been mistaken. Maybe he was hearing things that day. I don't know. Maybe he's playing a trick on me. (laughs) I'm not totally sure that it was God who said that. And you see, he's got Eve now. If you can plant that seed of doubt in her mind about the inspiration of where that word came from. And we have liberals today that tell us the same thing. They say, well, the Bible contains the word of God. Do you know what that leads us to to deduce? That not all of it is true, that we have to sift and sort through this Bible to figure out which part is the word of God and which part isn't. And once you go down that rabbit trail, you are lost. Because every person then, it's up to them and their own finite wisdom to try to figure out which part do I really think is God's word and which part isn't. Now friends, this is the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed. And when you go down that trail saying, well, I'm not quite sure if God said it or not. We talk to people all the time when we go door to door or go down the light rail and we'll start talking to them about the Bible and they'll say, well, I don't really believe the Bible. Men wrote the Bible. You can't really believe that. They have... They believe the lie that Satan came with to Eve and said, Has God really said that? And we need to answer, Yes, God has said that. We need to be sure that this is the inspired Word of God and that we can bank our life on it. So that is the second scheme of the devil. He wants to separate you from belief and inspiration, that God is the one who has said this. Third, he wants to attack our contentment. He attacks our contentment. Notice the very first thing he does when he comes to Eve. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
Now, I want to alert you to the fact that some translations say any tree, and some translations say every tree. And so we have to try to decide what's the better translation here. I thought that there was probably a textual variant, like some Hebrew manuscripts said any, and some Hebrew manuscripts say every, but I discovered that's not true. It's all the same Hebrew word. The fact is that this particular Hebrew word has a wide range of meaning. Sometimes it can mean any. Sometimes it can mean every. So you have to decide based on the context. The older translations like the King James and uh, Young's Literal and Darby and Dway Rames and Webster's, they translated every. And most of the newer translations like the NAS, which is what I have, or the NIV or the ESV, they translated any. But as I thought, and racked my brain and prayed about this, it seems to me a, the, the better translation of the two would be every, even though it goes against the translation I'm reading to you today. And I say that because it doesn't seem like it would be much of a temptation for her to say, has God said you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Even though that's false. See, it's a big difference. Has God told you you can't eat of any single tree in the garden? Well, of course she knows that's not true because she's going to starve to death if she can't eat of any tree. There's, there's no temptation in that. But if Satan comes and mouths something very similar to what God said, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of every single tree? In other words, is there a tree that God is not letting you eat from? There seem, that seems to be much closer to Satan's usual way of attacking. What he's doing, it is, he's putting his finger on the one prohibition that God had given man. God had told him, you can eat of any tree, any tree at all, except for one. And Satan comes to Eve and he says, there, there is something that God is not letting you do. So rather than cause Eve to focus on all the blessings that God had given her and cause her to be thankful for God's goodness to her, what does he do? He points out the one thing God's not going to let her do. He's not going to let you eat of one of those trees, Eve. Stirring up discontentment in her heart. And Satan still does that today. He may have blessed you with so much. You've, you've got a good measure of health. You've got a wonderful family, wonderful church. You've got a home, maybe even a car to drive to work. You've got a job. You've got all these blessings. But he says, yes, but God won't let you have that illicit sexual relationship with this person over there. He says that's off balance. He won't let you do it. Or God's not going to let you get into drugs. Or he's not going to let you abuse alcohol. And so you begin to think, yeah, that's right. This God is just a killjoy. He just wants to take all of my pleasure away. Yeah, yeah. And you start to side with Satan rather than looking at all the blessings that God has given to you and giving thanks to him and acknowledging that anything that he has told you he doesn't want you to do is only for your own good. So he stirs up discontentment. Notice that God puts it in the positive. God says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. What does Satan say? Satan says, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God puts it positively. You can eat of any tree you want in the garden, except for one. She puts the spin on the negative. There is a tree that you shouldn't or that you can't eat from. Okay, fourth scheme of Satan. Satan attacks the danger of sin. Notice verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall 
surely not die. You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, God had told her, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Satan comes to her and he says, no, you surely shall not die. She has a choice to make, doesn't she? She's got to believe somebody. It's to, it has to be one way or the other. Either she's going to die or she's not going to die. They're mutually exclusive. She can't believe both at the same time, so she has to make a choice. Who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe God or am I going to believe Satan? Satan comes to her and minimizes the danger of her sin. What he's telling her is that you can sin and get away with it. You're not going to die. It's everything's going to be okay. But God in his love and his mercy, do you know what God does? God lovingly warns us of the consequences of sin. You know, sometimes we can choose to do the right thing simply for our own self-preservation, can't we? You say, well, I don't want to go to jail. Or I don't want to lose my reputation. Or I don't want to get a sexually transmitted disease. I don't want to get AIDS. I think I'm going to do this. Sometimes simply the consequences of sin can deter us from a pattern of sin in our lives. So God comes to her and lovingly warns her of what is going to happen if she follows that course. And some people today, in fact, I hear this all the time, you probably do too, you talk about the fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and all mankind are going to one of those two places. And if we die outside of Christ, we're going to have to go to hell. And they'll say, well, I believe that, but hell is what I'm experiencing right now on this earth. How many of you have ever heard that? Man, I probably have heard that hundreds of times in my life. The problem is, that's not true. <laughs> this is not hell. Hell is going to happen after a person dies, and it's going to be for all eternity. In Revelation 21.8, God says that the unbelieving, the cowardly, uh, all who lie, those who are idolaters, shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. I mean, nothing could be more clear than that. They shall have their part. It's not that they're having their part now. It's going to be something that will be theirs if they die unbelieving or cowardly or a liar, dying in their sins without a Savior. That's going to be their portion. And Satan comes and, and convinces, and he's convinced most people, I think, that hell is not real. You don't have to be afraid. There's nothing to fear beyond the grave. Hell is what you're experiencing right now when you get sick or you suffer in this world. I'm friend. If you're an unbeliever, what you have right now is the best it's ever going to get. And if you're a Christian, it's the worst it's ever going to get. And that's the truth. So this is his scheme. He downplays the danger of sin. He convinces us that you can sin and get away with it and it's going to be okay. But it's a live Satan. Fifth scheme, he attacks the goodness of God. Notice what he says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see his tactic? He's, manip he's saying, God is manipulating you, Satan. He's manipulating you through fear. God knows that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you're going to be like him. 
God doesn't want you to be like him. And so he's keeping you down. He's pushing you down. He's, he's telling you that you'll die. You really won't, but he's telling you you'll die so that you won't eat of that fruit and become as great as he is. God wants to be the only one that is great and he wants to keep all of us lower than him. God's not good. God's holding out on you. And so, of course, this is stirring up that discontentment I talked about earlier. Whenever we begin to feel like God is not good or we begin to blame God, you know it's Satan that's at work in your life. That's not the Holy Spirit talking. That's Satan. He's whispering in your mind. And have you ever been tempted to blame God when you were suffering? God, why are you letting this happen? How could you do this to me, Lord? All of us have gone through really, really hard times at one time or another in our life. We've lost a loved one. We've been very, very sick. We've been in a a bad car accident. And it's tempting to blame God and accuse God of doing evil during those times. Don't do it. Refuse to do that. I rebuke you, Satan. I will not listen to your lies in this situation. God is good. One, One of the things that's important for us to do is just to remember the character and the attributes of God. So that's a a fifth scheme of Satan. Satan wants to make you independent by believing that you're going to have this great knowledge of God. And that's what he wants to do is to suck you away from God, create a chasm, a separation between you and God because of this independence. But a sixth scheme, Satan attacks the glory of God. He attacks the glory of God. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Satan has made the fruit of this tree really, really attractive. She sees that it's good for food. She sees that it's desirable to make her wise. She sees that it's attractive. It's beautiful. It's it's good for the eyes. And so the fruit of this tree has just become this alluring, enamoring, captivating thing. She feels she's got to have it. Well, of course, Satan is the one who's enhanced all of these things so that she's drawn away. She's drawn away by these various lusts in her life. What's happening is that she's seeing the fruit as bigger and better than God. And my friends, watch out when anything starts to look bigger or better to you than God does. When that happens, you're going to fall. What happens when you see, oh man, God is way bigger and way better than this sin? What happens? Sin loses its power over you. Do you want to know the, the do you want to this, know the secret of holiness? It's to always truly value God to be bigger and better than the sin that Satan brings into your life. As long as you find God and His ways better than sin in its ways, it'll lose its power. There's no temptation. If you offered me some raw spinach or a hot fudge sundae, there's no temptation in the spinach because the sundae is bigger and better than the spinach. Do you see my point? God is. It's not that we have to see Him as. He is bigger and better than anything that would ever draw us away. And we just need to have faith to see God as who he is and to devalue this sin. Satan makes it very beautiful and alluring 
But you taste of that sin and you'll see where it takes you. There's always misery attached to sin. So these six schemes. He attacks the vulnerable. He attacks the inspiration of the word. He attacks our contentment. He attacks the danger of sin. He attacks the goodness of God and he attacks the glory of God. Let's look now at man. We've seen Satan and his schemes. Let's look at man and his failure. When Satan came to Eve, she made some big mistakes. She took away from the word and she added to the word. Now, first of all, she took away from God's word. God had said, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely. What does she say? Verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. She leaves off the word any, and she leaves off the word freely. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But it is subtly devaluing and minimizing the goodness of God. God says, from any tree, you may eat freely. And she doesn't say that when the serpent questions her. And so the the goodness and blessing of God is being subtly undermined in her thinking because she's taking away from God's word. But that's not all. You find also in verse 3, she says, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Lest you die. Now, what did God say? You will surely die. God says, you will surely die. She says, lest you die. The word lest means for fear that I might So God says it's a black and white absolute certainty that you're going to die. She leaves that off. She takes away God's word and doesn't say what God says. And she changes it just slightly to say, lest perhaps I might die. So in God's mind, death is an absolute certainty. In Eve's mind, it's a possibility. You see what happens when we begin to subtly and just with just a minimum, we we change the word of God just a little bit it starts to lose its power in our lives. So we need to be very careful about taking away from God's word or in any way changing God's word. Notice that she also adds to God's word. She says in verse 3, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. Had God said anything about touching the tree or the fruit of the tree? No. She adds that in. Now, she might have had good motives for doing that. She might have said, you know, yeah, I don't want to eat of the fruit of that tree. And so to keep me from eating of the fruit of that tree, I'm not even going to touch it. Because if I, touch, if I don't touch it, I won't eat it. So I'm not even going to touch it. And that would have been a good motivation. But it's not, that's not what she's saying here. She's saying that God said, you shall not touch it. And we have a word for that. When someone adds a man-made rule and regulation and says that this has binding authority over your conscience, do you know what that word is? Legalism. Legalism. Here we have the first example of legalism in our Bibles. Legalism is when someone adds man-made rules and they say to you, you can't go to movies. It's a sin. It's a sin to drink. It's a sin to get a tattoo. It's a sin to play cards or go to the theater or... And they start listing all of these things. 
You have to have your dress a certain length and your hair a certain length, and all these become black and white sins. Well, the Bible has nothing to say about these particular issues. It tells us to use wisdom to honor God in the way we conduct ourselves. But when you start to add these rules and regulations and bind other people's consciences with them, you become a legalistic person. And that all always binds us. It always has a deadening effect on our spiritual life. We are free in Christ to follow the, the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. So we need to beware of adding to God's Word just as much as taking away from God's Word. But thirdly, notice that she believes Satan's lies. Satan said she wouldn't die. She believed it. Satan said that it was desirable to eat of this tree because it would make her wise. She believed Satan. Satan said, God's not good. He's holding out on you. She she believed Satan in that instance. She's starting to believe the lies of the enemy. And be very, very careful that you don't begin to become twisted and distorted in your thinking about God so that you begin to believe lies about God. You know, you can probably trace just about every sin in your life to some lie that you believe about God. We've been learning this over the last couple of years. And it's encapsulated in the four G's. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. God is glorious. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. When you begin to doubt these truths about God, that's when sin begins to creep into your life. And we need to constantly go back to these truths about God and hold on to them in in the time of temptation. When I am tempted to justify myself and prove myself, I need to remember, God is gracious, I don't have to prove myself. And you know what? There's power in just believing the truth about God. There's power to overcome temptation. Because I felt that working in my own life when I'm able to do that. So that was one of the failures of man. Eve believed Satan's lies. Another failure was she wanted to be as God. That was the temptation that Satan threw out to her. Verse 5, God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You know, that is, the, that is the sin that caused Satan to fall from heaven as one of the glorious angels to become the devil. He wanted to be as the Most High, Isaiah chapter 14. And because that hooked him, this is what he tries to hook us with. Did you know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe that they are going to become gods? It's the same lie of Satan back in the garden. Did you know that the New Age movement and other Eastern religious movements teach that all of us have this Christ consciousness within, and if we just tap into this Christ consciousness, we can become divine? I mean, all of these crazy, weird cults, and even the occult, will tell you that you are really God if you just knew how to Uh, actualize the potential within you. Satan's old lie. Friends, if there's one thing I know, is that there is a God, and I'm not him. And you're not him either. And we're never going to be him. And we need to be content with the fact that we're never going to be God. We need to be willing to humble ourselves as creatures in the dust and serve and love and worship this great God that made us. 
and not look for self-worship, becoming gods ourselves. That was what tore her down. And the last failure that she made, and the man made this failure as well, they ascribed more glory in the fruit than they did to God. Notice the adjectives in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable, it's good, it's delightful, it's desirable, she was captivated by it. She began to see more value and more worth in the partaking of that fruit than she did see in the God who gave her the command not to eat of that fruit. And when she eats of that fruit, Satan has got her because Satan uses three specific temptations in people's lives. 1 John 2.15 There we read that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are the three areas that Satan chiefly uses to, to get us. Lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. Lust of the eyes. It was a delight to the eyes. The pride of life. It was desirable to make her wise. Satan's using all of these things in her life. He's appealing to the flesh, to the eyes, and to her own pride to get her to fall. So that is the failure that we see here in man. Now, let's turn our attention from Satan and his schemes and man and his failure. Let's turn our attention now to Jesus and his obedience. And this is where things get really good. You see, there's only two people in all the Bible who are ever called the Son of God. Of course, Jesus was called the Son of God 40 times in your New Testament. He's referred to as the Son of God. But there is one other person in your Bible who's called the Son of God. Do you know who it is? Well, no, he's the first one. Adam. Luke 3.38 says Adam was the Son of God. We have two people mentioned as the Son of God. And in Romans 5.14, it says that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Now, a type is like something in the Old Testament that foreshadows something to come in the New Testament. It's a picture. Well, Adam was a picture of Jesus to come. So we have the first man and the last man. And what I want to show you is how the first man's disobedience was a picture of the last man's obedience. See, most of the time types uh, correspond. There's a one-to-one correspondence or similarity between something in the Old Testament and something in the New. But in this case, it's a contrast. Let's look at some of those contrasts. First of all, the place where both of these persons were tempted. Adam is tempted in a paradise in the Garden of Eden under a perfect environment. He has not sinned. It's a perfect environment. He's in fellowship with a perfect God. Satan comes to the man and the woman and he's able to get them to rebel in that kind of a situation. Well, think about Jesus when Satan comes to tempt him. He's in a wilderness, isn't he? A howling wilderness. And think about the conditions of their temptation. Adam had a full belly. He's been feasting on all the trees of the field. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Adam is at his absolute strongest. Jesus is at his physical weakest point. Think about the law that God gave each of them to to obey. 
God gave Adam how many laws? One. God gave Christ how many laws? A lot. <laughs> all the laws we find in our Old Testament. Jesus was under the law and had to obey all of those laws, whether they were the Ten Commandments or whether they were the ceremonial laws or the feasts and festivals and new moons and all of the things that God gave to Israel. Jesus had to obey them in order to redeem us from being under the law. And then notice also the outcome. There's a huge difference in the outcome between Adam and Christ. Adam and Jesus are both public persons, which means that they're representatives. They represent a people. Adam represents all of those who are descended from him physically. Jesus represents all those who are descended from him what? Spiritually. The elect of God. So, Adam comes into the world, and what he does is put to the account of everybody he represents. So what does he do? He sins. Therefore, he is condemned. Therefore, he dies. Sin, condemnation, death. That is what we inherit from Adam. We're born sinners. We're born condemned. And we will die physically, but if we don't find a Savior, we will die eternally. That's what Adam gives you. But there is another Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of sin, he brings in obedience. Instead of condemnation, he brings justification. Just its opposite. Instead of death, he brings life. And he gives these blessings to all those that he represents. All those who are in him find obedience, justification, righteousness, and life in their Savior. I want to read to you from uh, Romans chapter 5 that puts this really, really clearly. Romans 5.16 And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Do you see how he's corresponding between Adam and Christ? What Adam did is put to our account, but what Christ does is also put to our account. So, here's the thing. We have been ruined by what Adam did. Ruined and wrecked by the fall, as one of our songs say. And I mean that. We, th- this world has taken a, a hard fall. So hard. That's why we see the, the, the misery and the travesty and the sickness and pain and suffering and crime and evil going on all around us. Everywhere you look, it's because of the fall. Well, Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall. And he had to come as a man because it was a man who messed the whole thing up, right? A man has got to undo the effects of the fall. So here comes Jesus Christ, a man, assumed a human nature, born under the law, born of a woman, coming into the world just like Adam was in the world. 
And he faces Satan temptations in the same way that Adam and Eve faced those temptations under worse situations, more difficult situations, and Christ succeeds where Adam fails. You see, there's something really important I want to impart to you today, and that is, and you might think this is heretical, so don't get up and walk away right away. We are saved by works, but not ours. We're saved by Christ's works. If Jesus had not lived the kind of life that he lived, you and I could not be saved. You see, we often talk about Jesus dying for us, but do you rejoice in the fact that he lived for you? We might not even think of that most of the time, but that is crucial to understand for our justification. The life that Jesus lived is put to our account when we believe. It's not just that he dies for our sin and covers up our transgressions. Yes, he does that, but he also lived a perfect life. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. And when you come to die, my friends, you will thank God for the active obedience of Christ. A, a theologian by the name of John Murray, when he was lying on his deathbed, whispered in his dying moments, Oh, how grateful I am for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. He knew that apart from Jesus, living the life that he couldn't live, and then putting that life to his account when he trusted him, he would be lost forever. And have you ever thanked God and worshipped God that Jesus came in your place and lived the kind of life that God required of you, but you didn't do? We ought to. That ought to be a theme of worship for us. He lived the life that we didn't live, and then he died the death that we could never die, and he rose for our justification. And this Lord, this Savior, undoes the effects of the fall Whereas Adam is the disobedient son, Jesus Christ is the obedient son. And so those of you who are outside of Christ, I don't know who that applies to. God does. Hopefully you know whether you are in Christ or not. If you are not in Christ this morning, there is a Savior that God freely offers to all men. Just like he freely offered all the trees of the garden, he sends his son and he freely offers Jesus Christ. God holds out his hands and says, Welcome, welcome, come. Come to my son and find justification and life and forgiveness. The curse is gone. Enter back into paradise. Receive life. It's all available. Come. Well, how does a person come? Do you know? They believe. In the Bible, coming and believing are the same thing. Saving faith is, we can't come to Jesus physically because he's not on the earth. To come to Jesus now means you come to him in faith and you trust this Savior. You are saved the moment you truly trust him. You transfer your trust from yourself and you transfer it to Jesus Christ. Just yesterday, I was talking to a dear person. I just met him yesterday. I love him already. But I asked him during that conversation, what is your hope, what is your confidence that when you die, you are going to spend eternity with God? And he thought for a moment and he said, my good works, my good works. I'm trusting in my good works. And how I so long to help him see that he, it's going to damn him. If he trusts in his good works, he's going to end up in hell because his good works are not good enough for God to accept. What's the standard God accepts? 
perfection. And even this man, he, he by our human standards, he's a good man. But it's not good enough to be received by God himself. There's only one who has ever lived a life good enough for God to accept, and that's Jesus. And our trust must be in him. And so if you're outside of Christ, come to Jesus and put your full trust in him today. And if you're a saint, if you're in Christ, then rejoice this morning that the obedient Son of God has wrought out a salvation for you and you rest in Him. You rejoice in Him. You find life and forgiveness fully in what He has done for you. Don't look to the sacraments of the church. Don't look to this person or that person. Look to Christ alone. Please, my friends. (laughs) Folks, this is a very subtle thing. Satan will want to shake you from this. He'll want to get your eyes off of Christ and onto anything else. Just as Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves and he started to sink, if we get our eyes off of Christ, we're going to start to sink. Come to Jesus, stay in Jesus, and rejoice in Jesus. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the obedient son today. And we confess that all of our hope is in you. We have none in ourselves. Lord, we confess two things, that we're great sinners, but that we have found a great Savior. And this Savior is greater than our sin. We feel even today, Lord, the effects of sin. We know that we have not measured up to your perfect standard, but we thank you for Christ who did. And Lord, may we be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith, that which comes from God on the basis of faith. If there's anyone here today who is not trusting in Christ alone, Lord, would you enable them to come, enable them to trust you right now? And Lord, let us just rejoice as we receive the emblems of your body and blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.